The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Deeply grieved by what I have just heard of the suffering and losses inflicted on the Grand Army after the long series of successes that have carried your arms to the North Pole itself, and knowing how terribly pressed you are at present, and how urgent it is to assemble all the defenses possible, and as furious preparations are apace for the terrible struggle that will shortly continue, and therefore convinced that there has never been a more critical moment for France, for your reign, for you personally, I come, sire, to offer the country of my birth, and to you, despite my poor health, whatever assistance I possibly can, provided that I am permitted to do so with honor. Louis Bonaparte to French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, January 1st, 1813. This letter from the exiled brother that he had forced off of the throne of Holland in 1810 came as an unexpected and quite pleasant surprise to the Emperor of the French, Napoleon Premier, after his disastrous invasion of Russia. It was a rare, bright point in what would prove to be a difficult year for the man who had conquered Europe. Before I get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Thanks so much to Cody from the Imperfect Men podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. With each episode of their podcast, Cody and Stephen explore the lives and legacies of the various folks who signed the four key documents in the founding of the United States. The Continental Association, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. Some of the names like Samuel Adams and John Hancock are well known to the general populace, but others like Samuel Chase William Klingon, and Richard Caswell of my own home state of North Carolina may not be familiar even to students of Revolutionary and Early Republic history. However, Cody and Stevens share insight and perspective on just what these folks contributed to the establishment of a new nation despite of, or sometimes due to, their imperfections. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Imperfect Men wherever you get your podcasts. I'll have information around the release of this episode on my social media, as well as on the website, presidenciespodcast.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. In order to understand how the European powers were acting with regards to the various wars on the North American continent, including the War of 1812 and the Creek War, we must understand what was happening back on the continent of Europe. Even in his retreat from Russia, Napoleon was issuing orders for raising another 300,000 men. The emperor and the few remaining members of his retinue, described by Napoleon biographer Alan Scholm as, quote, a few cavaliers, finally made their way back to the Tuileries in December 1812. Though Napoleon had to report the disastrous defeat officially to the French government and people, as one commentator noted, quote, his sudden return to Paris his firm, confident attitude stopped our despair. 
one heard no more whispers of his fall. We felt too humiliated to complain, and national pride would not permit us to dwell on the sacrifices we had made. Unfortunately, when the emperor retreated to Versailles to regroup, he was thrown from his horse and had to spend a few days in bed recovering. Whether it was from the massive defeat in Russia or the personal setback that he faced, at the beginning of January 1813, it seemed that Napoleon had a new outlook on matters. The emperor realized just how foolhardy it was to fight a war on two fronts. As he was not willing to give up the Eastern Front, Napoleon's mind turned to how to get himself and French forces out of the Peninsular War to the Southwest. While sending his brother, King Joseph of Spain, orders to retreat from Madrid and establish new headquarters close to the border with France, Napoleon was also planning to send a letter to someone who we haven't discussed in a bit. In episode 4.13, we examine how the kings of Spain, Carlos Cuatro and his son, Fernando Siete, had been manipulated by Napoleon to work at cross-purposes before Napoleon got them to relinquish control of Spain to him. After locking them away at a castle, the French emperor had then installed his brother Joseph as the new king. Now, Napoleon was having a rethink. If Fernando, who was still being held prisoner in France, was willing to agree that the British would have to evacuate from Spain, the emperor was willing to restore his crown and end the conflict on the Iberian Peninsula. As Napoleon wrote to one of his advisors, quote, I have sacrificed thousands, hundreds of thousands of men, in order that he, Joseph, should be able to reign in Spain. It was a mistake on my part to have thought my brothers necessary in order to assure my dynastic rule. My dynasty is now assured without them. It therefore no longer makes the slightest difference to me that Ferdinand will be replacing Joseph. By March 17, 1813, Joseph was leaving Madrid for the final time, and the Battle of Victoria on June 21st would quash any hope of retaining Bonapartist rule in Spain. By the summer, Joseph was back in France. Meanwhile, Napoleon needed to make sure that his lineage truly was assured. As noted in episode 4.19, the emperor had divorced his wife, the Empress Josephine, and married Marie-Louise of Austria. This new imperial couple had been successful in their efforts to produce an heir. However, by that point, Napoleon had been excommunicated and Pope Pius VII was being held hostage by the emperor as discussed in episode 4.5. In order to get back on a firmer footing, Napoleon approached the Pope about signing a concordat which would restore relations between the Vatican and France and perform a coronation ceremony for Marie-Louise as Empress of the French and for his son, Napoleon Deuxième, as King of Rome. Pius initially agreed on January 25, 1813 and signed the Concordat. However, he quickly had a change of heart, and by March 24th, he publicly denounced the Concordat. Thus, Napoleon arranged his own ceremony for Marie-Louise on March 30th, where he recognized her as regent in his absence. Indeed, it wouldn't be long before he was absent from the French capital once more, for by that point, war was again in the making in Europe. Having successfully fended off Napoleon's attack, Russian Tsar Alexander, quote, was convinced that the fight should be pursued, that the interest of Europe required new military engagements. Technically, France was still allied with Prussia, but as discussed in episode 4.9, 
It was a very loose alliance at best. By January 13, 1813, Russian troops were already crossing the Neiman River into Prussian territory. Saul Alexander on February 22nd sent a proclamation to quote, all Germans, as well as other peoples fighting alongside Napoleon, asserting that the Russians were, quote, extending a helping hand to oppressed peoples. With the Tsar providing assurances to Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm, quote, that Prussia would be restored to a size equivalent to that of 1806, the Prussians declared war on March 16th. By that point, however, two separate coalitions stood against the French Empire. The Russians and Prussians were joined by Sweden and mecklenburg strelitz while Britain had already been allied with Portugal, Sicily, and Spain. It would take a few months before the two coalitions coalesced into one in June, a process begun in March when Britain formed an alliance with Sweden. Despite that detail, March is the date given for the beginning of what's come to be known as the War of the Sixth Coalition. The plan, at least from the part of the Russo-Prussian alliance, included, quote, the liberation of Germany from France, the destruction of the Confederation of the Rhine as a French organization, and the summoning of all German princes to join them. There was still one French enemy missing from the opposition, however. Given that the Habsburgs now had one of their own as the Empress of the French and had suffered such humiliating losses to the armies of Napoleon in the past, it was a tough sell to convince them to rejoin the conflict against the French. Indeed, Habsburg Emperor Franz Erste, quote, offered to act as mediator of a peace accord between France and its opponents. In response, the French emperor sent a diplomat to Vienna to do what we've seen as an art form perfected by the French diplomatic corps, stall and delay. Meanwhile, the coalition forces took Warsaw, followed by Berlin, then Hamburg, then Dresden, on an eastward march. As noted by Scholm, quote, that Napoleon remained in Paris as long as he did, given the grave situation, is puzzling. The usually decisive, indeed impetuous, commander did not set out from the French capital until April 15th. Rebellion in the French puppet state of the Confederation of the Rhine was growing, and Napoleon's desire to hold the coalition forces at the Elba River seemed to be threatened. At the beginning of May, the emperor had managed to assemble his forces just south of Lutzen, when he heard, quote, heavy guns and intensive small arms fire. Forced into battle, Napoleon positioned his troops to support Marshal Michel Ney, whose command had been attacked by coalition forces. As described by Scholm, quote, with the smell of gunfire and apparent near disaster close at hand, the Napoleon of yore suddenly came to life, true to legend, personally leading up fresh, hesitant regiments of green recruits. The old Bonaparte magic worked again as morale suddenly soared, jubilant cries of Vive l'Empereur clashing with the roar of cannon. Though the French would come out victorious, they would pay a heavy price. Ney's corps was mostly wiped out, and the French force suffered around 20,000 casualties. Even worse, the Allied coalition forces had not been divided by the loss nor did they take the bait offered by the strategic position gained by the victory that allowed Napoleon an opportunity to launch an attack on Berlin. The French emperor had hoped in vain that the Prussians would draw from their allies to defend their capital. But this proved not to be the case. 
After the devastating loss of a close friend and associate in the Battle of Belzen in the latter part of May 1813, Napoleon agreed to a temporary ceasefire on June 2nd that resulted in a truce until July 20th, which, at least on paper, was when negotiations for a peace settlement would begin. However, as noted by Scholm, quote, Napoleon now offered the ideal occasion for making peace after two bloody but victorious engagements, had no intention of losing face by making a compromising peace involving the return of land he had taken. For him, it was all or nothing. No longer living in the world of reality, he was intent on destroying both the Prussian and Russian armies that had somehow escaped him. Meanwhile, on July 9th, the British concluded a secret treaty in which they agreed to subsidize not only the Swedish forces, but also those of the Habsburgs if they would agree to join the coalition. Though it's not known when, at some point, Napoleon learned of this treaty. But though the forces allied against him were growing stronger and more intricately connected, he would not back down. In early August 1813, Negotiations between the French and the coalition concluded without a peace agreement, and the war continued. At this point, Napoleon was struggling. So much had gone out of his control, and the loss of his Habsburg allies was a big blow. August 1813 was spent issuing orders and starting a strategic move, which was quickly countermanded and reversed or redirected. French forces had managed to retake Dresden, and Napoleon was able to resist an Allied assault on that city in late August. This victory was tempered by losses on other fronts, and, as described by Scholm, quote, the situation was changing rapidly, fresh Allied armies appearing out of nowhere, often covering great distances, forming and reforming, drawing ever closer. By October, Napoleon finally had a better handle on the strategic situation and decided that the time had come to strike a blow against the coalition forces at what was described as, quote, one of the greatest German centers of German commerce and wealth, a city named Leipzig. The French emperor and most of his force arrived on October 14th. However, as noted by Scholm, quote, Bonaparte was not at all pleased with what he found. His men were stretched in a line two to four miles to the south of the city, a thin defensive line of troops to the west of the city, and separated by a wide, marshy, wooded area from Leipzig on a single causeway and bridge connecting it. What is more, this marsh extended from north of the city to a few miles to the south, presenting a great barrier to the maneuverability of friends and foe alike. If that wasn't enough, Napoleon at that point was unaware that the Allied force against him was 203,000 strong versus his 177,500 troops, and that the Prussian army under General Gebhard Leberich von Blücke was quickly approaching to add 54,000 to the Allied cause. Fighting started on the morning of the 16th and continued on all day and for the next two days. By the evening of the 18th, Napoleon realized that the battle was lost, and overnight, his remaining force withdrew in the dark. Napoleon had left behind a rear guard of 30,000 troops, which was intended to retreat to rejoin the main force once their retreat was secured. However, due to a panicked corporal, the bridge to be used for the rear guard's retreat was blown up while French troops were still crossing, and the majority of the rear guard 
was still on the side with the enemy. Thus, the majority of those folks had to surrender to the Allies. In addition to 30,000 prisoners of war, the French suffered a staggering loss of 75,000 men in the battle, while the Allies lost 54,000. The losses were heavy at the top for the French as well, with a dozen general officers killed and 36 taken as prisoner. The emperor himself arrived at his palace at Saint-Cloud on November 9th, and on the 11th, Dresden was surrendered to Habsburg forces. On the 14th, the emperor appeared before the French Senate to give a report of the situation. Napoleon asserted that, quote, The Grand Empire no longer exists. It is France itself we must now defend. We'll leave the emperor of the French here for the time being and hop back across the Atlantic to get caught up with what was happening in Spanish America. We've talked at length about what was transpiring in the Floridas, but let's get caught up in what was happening in Spanish Tejas, which we last discussed in episode 4.24. We left that episode in early April 1813 with soldiers from the Republican Army of the North, which was campaigning for the independence of Tejas, murdering the captured Spanish governor Manuel Salcedo, as well as the governor of the neighboring province of Nuevo León and 12 others, while supposedly escorting them to be released, as had been agreed. Still, this would not stop the revolutionaries from adopting a Declaration of Independence on April 6, 1813, a document that historian Ted Schwartz asserted, quote, clearly showed both Spanish and American influence. In this document, the Spanish province of Tejas was proclaimed to be the state of Texas for the first time. The provincial government established, however, was not what we would call a representative government. The principal leader of the Republican Army of the North, José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara, was given the authority, quote, to name a president, a secretary, and five advisors to constitute a junta of seven, which would have full power to form a government and to write a constitution. For the top job, Gutiérrez could think of no one more qualified than himself. So he named himself and some of his supporters to fill the post of this provincial government, cutting out of the leadership prominent Americans who had joined the cause. Within three weeks' time, numerous American officers, including Samuel Kemper, took, quote, furloughs from the Republican Army of the North and returned to the United States. They did not want to be associated with such dishonorable behavior. While the Republican Army would gain more members, swelling to 1,500 in number, Without experienced officers to lead it, the army soon fell into disorder. Gutierrez, meanwhile, made it clear that his plans did not stop with Texas. He issued proclamations that he and the Republican army would stop at nothing short than the overthrow of the Spanish colonial government of New Spain and urge people in Mexico to join the cause. Meanwhile, American officials in Natchitoches learned in early May of what had transpired with Governor Salcedo and the other captives as well as the Declaration of Independence, and were furious. They began to plot to replace Gutierrez with his revolutionary compatriot, José Álvarez de Toledo, who had remained on the East Coast until his recent arrival in Natchitoches. Word would soon come, however, that the biggest threat to Gutierrez was marching up from Mexico. Don Joaquín de Arradondo was named as Commandant General of the Provincias Internas Orientes, or, en anglais, Eastern Interior Provinces, in June, 
and immediately set to work, along with Lieutenant Colonel Ignacio Elizondo, to gather Spanish forces for a counterattack to decimate the Republican forces in Texas. On June 18th, forces under Elizondo arrived on the outskirts of San Fernando de Beja, modern-day San Antonio, then the capital of Texas. The commander of the American forces in the Republican Army, who had taken over from Kemper in April, resigned. And the new commander, Major Henry Perry, was tasked with organizing the defense of Behar. Perry and his 900 men successfully pushed back Elizondo's force in the Battle of Alazan and only lost five men, with around 20 wounded. Despite this victory, American leaders in Texas and back in Natchitoches were still convinced that the time had come for a change in leadership. Americans in Behar signed a petition to invite Toledo to come to the capital. An American agent threatened the governing junto that, unless they turned their allegiance from Gutierrez and invited Toledo to Behar, the desperately needed American volunteers would abandon the Republican army. One by one, the pieces fell into place, and on August 3rd, two days after the arrival of Toledo in Behar, Gutierrez resigned his office and agreed to return to the United States. The next day, Toledo took his place under the new title of Commander-in-Chief. For anyone who thought that this would be the solution to all of the problems of the Revolutionary Army, however, they were soon to discover just how mistaken they were, as Arradondo was drawing close with his force of 1,830 men aiming to completely decimate the around 1,200 to 1,400 strong Republican Army. On August 17th, Arradondo and his force set up camp a league and a half from Behar. The Republican army was not caught completely unaware, as scouts had spotted Arradondo's approach days earlier. However, Toledo had already made a call, which would prove to be a monumental mistake. Rather than hunkering down in the defensible San Fernando de Behar, he decided to press the attack on Arradondo, and thus marched his force out with the goal to engage the Spanish at, quote, the sandy wilderness below Galinas Creek. In the early morning of the 18th, Toledo roused the Republican army, and they set out to surprise Arradondo and his troops in an ambush. The battle, which would come to be known as the Battle of Medina, was an utter disaster for the Republican army. Toledo misjudged the arrival of the Spanish forces, could not keep control of the forces under his command, and ended up stumbling into a counter-ambush. Arradondo, meanwhile, kept up the pursuit as the Republican forces fled and ordered the execution of 100 prisoners captured in the battle. Elizondo was ordered to take 200 cavalrymen to Behar, quote, to apprehend those who fled early in the action and to take possession of the town. No quarter was given to those Republican forces captured, and the Republicans, desperately fleeing back to the United States, were pursued all the way to the border. As described by Schwartz, quote, by mid-September, the rebellion had been crushed and Texas lay desolate. 2,000 of the inhabitants and several tribes of Indians had fled across the Sabine. Arradondo had indeed snatched Texas from republicanism. He had effectively blocked the avenue for American aid to independence movements in the interior of Mexico, and he had reasserted the royal authority in the Buffer province. Though independence would be delayed in Texas, the battle continued in other parts of Spanish America. As discussed way back in episode 4.17, 
Venezuela had declared independence in July 1811. However, as noted by historian Joseph F. Thorning, quote, few, if any, of the delegates who signed the Declaration of Independence on July 5, 1811, realized that it was likewise a declaration of war. Having enjoyed the peacefulness and prosperity of their colonial world, they could not easily foresee the bloodshed and disorder of a revolutionary epoch. The counter-revolution began a week after independence was declared, and royalist opposition would continue to grow after that. Meanwhile, Republican leaders engaged in the work of drafting a constitution, which was signed on December 21st. While this seemed to be a positive step forward, as the months went on, the situation in Venezuela continued to worsen. It did not help that, on March 26th, which was Maundy Thursday, or Holy Thursday in the Holy Week leading up to Easter, a series of massive earthquakes struck Venezuela, quote, that left thousands of people killed, maimed, and deranged in its wake. Within a few minutes, churches, homes, highways, storehouses, and fountains were ruined. To death and destruction succeeded the danger of plague. Human bodies were cast into the flames in order to avert stagnation and disease. Meanwhile, the epicenter of the pro-Spanish counter-revolution remained unscathed. The prospects of the Venezuelan Republic deteriorated to the point that, in April 1812, revolutionary leader Francisco de Miranda, who has been popping up in our narrative since the Adams presidency, was invited, quote, to assume absolute power. General Miranda was promoted to the rank of Generalissimo and proclaimed the head of the state. Miranda set his sights on three goals. Quote, First, discipline and training for the troops. Second, financial reorganization of the republic. And third, political moves, especially in the field of international relations. Miranda did what he could, but the pro-Spanish forces were too strong. And it became clear by the first anniversary of the Declaration of Independence that the Venezuelan Republic was teetering on the brink of disaster. As Miranda himself proclaimed, upon hearing the news of the fall of the key port of Puerto Cabello, quote, Venezuela has been pierced to the heart. Soon enough, Miranda assembled a council of war to determine what terms of surrender they should ask from the Spanish faction, and negotiations began at Valencia. By the end of the month, Miranda had finalized the terms of surrender when key supporters, including a young man named Simon Bolivar, turned on him, declared him a traitor, and turned him over to the Spanish forces. On August 1st, Spanish forces occupied Caracas, officially ending the first Venezuelan Republic. In return for his role in handing over Miranda, Bolivar would be granted a pass, which he used to set sail for exile in Curacao on August 27th. You'll want to keep an eye on this Bolivar, but in the meantime, we need to bid farewell to our friend Miranda. Though many would try to secure his release over the next few years, Francisco de Miranda would suffer a stroke on the evening of March 25, 1816, while in prison in Cadiz, Spain. He lingered on for a few months longer, going from better to worse and back again. But then finally, on July 14th, the anniversary of the fall of the Bastille, this champion for the fight for South American independence died at the age of 66 with his last words being, quote, let me die 
in peace. Though Miranda would not live to see his dream fulfilled, if you haven't already guessed from my reference to the first Venezuelan Republic, this was not the end of the Republican movement in Venezuela. Before we part ways, though, I'd like to take one more detour to see what's happening in Louisiana, specifically in the smuggling activity based out of Barataria Bay. Last mentioned in episodes 4.14 and 4.17, brothers Pierre and Jean Lafitte had been running a black market operation in Barataria for years. And as you can imagine, the War of 1812 and the imposing of a blockade by the British meant that business was lucrative for the Lafittes. As historian William C. Davis wrote, quote, Never before had the same individuals controlled the acquisition of prize goods through piracy or privateering, their delivery to the market vicinity, subsequent smuggling or transport of the goods to the waiting market, and then their wholesale and retail sale. The potential for profit in controlling every phase of the operation beckoned, and now the Lafitte brothers resolved to do just that taking advantage of the shortages caused by the war and the British blockade and the distraction of the authorities, thanks to the war. Great opportunity meant great risk, however, and it wasn't long before news of the smuggling operation was in New Orleans newspapers. Again from Davis, quote, It may have been the first detailed news that New Orleanians had of the operation, whatever rumors they had heard, and it raised a new theme in complaints about the Corsair merchants. By refusing to take banknotes or give credit, they were creating a shortage of hard money in the midst of the inflationary problems being caused by the war. It wasn't long before the state government had to determine what was going to be their response to this threat. Governor William C.C. Claiborne knew that not only was the economy, but also the reputation of the newest state in the Union at risk. And thus, on March 15, 1813, he issued a proclamation ordering the, quote, considerable banditti that have armed and equipped several vessels for the avowed purpose of cruising on the high seas and committing depredations and piracies of the vessels of nations at peace with the United States and carrying on an illicit trade in goods, wares, and merchandise with the inhabitants of this state to cease their operation and for all citizens to avoid business dealings with the smugglers. While Claiborne wasn't naive enough to believe that one proclamation would solve the problem, he hoped at least it would motivate citizens to boycott the Baratarian operation and law enforcement to be more proactive in shutting down the black market. Claiborne also coordinated with the commander of the 7th Military District, Major General Thomas Flournoy, to try to apply military might against the Lafittes. While the spotlight meant that the Lafitte brothers were no longer able to travel to New Orleans openly as they had in the past, as Davis explains, quote, the Lafitte operation grew increasingly sophisticated. The brothers even devised a means of introducing contraband goods directly into New Orleans aboard their own ships in broad daylight. They even shifted their primary base of operations from Barataria to Cat Island, an uninhabited coastal barrier island. Though the pressure increased, it was clear that current efforts were not working. So Governor Claiborne took a further step towards the end of the year to combat the smuggling threat. To that point, the Lafittes had not been named in print, either in newspapers or proclamations. On November 24, 1813, however, 
Claiborne issued another proclamation in which he named Jean Lafitte as the primary culprit and offered up, quote, a $500 reward to anyone delivering Lafitte to the sheriff in New Orleans or any other sheriff in the state. Jean happened to be in New Orleans when the proclamation was issued, but no one took the governor up on his offer. The next day, New Orleanians found, quote, posted at the Exchange Coffee House and elsewhere, a $1,000 reward offered for apprehending Governor Claiborne and delivering him to Cat Island. It was simply signed, Lafitte. We'll have to see what happens with this standoff in a future episode, for our time together is drawing to a close. Thanks so much again to Cody from the Imperfect Men podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out Imperfect Men wherever you get your podcast. A link to his podcast can also be found on the page for this episode on the website, presidenciespodcast.com. Thanks so much to Christian of your podcast pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you're a podcaster looking for assistance with your editing work, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com to learn more about the services Christian provides. Special thanks also to the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hall's Victory as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening with the Presidencies podcast, I just launched a monthly e-newsletter. Just go to presidencies.substack.com to sign up. If you'd like to contribute to the work of the podcast, I cannot thank you enough for your support to offset the cost of equipment, services, and research resources used to make Presidencies happen. If you'd like to sign up for a recurring donation, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies to sign up to be a patron of the podcast. Patrons get numerous perks, including but not limited to access to an ad-free feed for the podcast. At the $10 a month level and up, we have a monthly call where we always have a lively conversation and patrons can ask any burning questions they have about the podcast or presidential history in general. If you'd like to do a one-time donation, I just set up an account on Buy Me A Coffee, so you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash presidencies. If you'd rather not contribute monetarily right now, leaving a rating and review is a great way to show your support by telling others why they should be listening to the Presidencies podcast. For those who regularly share information about new episodes on social media, I cannot thank you enough, as word of mouth is still, even in the 21st century, the best way to get the word out there. Speaking of, if you're not connected with me on social media yet, I can be found on Facebook, Post, Mastodon, and Blue Sky as Presidencies, on the formerly known as Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram and Threads as Presidencies Podcast. Feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. With all that said, I cannot thank you enough for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.